Uh, Today, as we dive into our brand new series, one thing that may be helpful is that inside your worship folder, there's a message notes sheet, which will guide you through the uh, outline of the sermon and whether or not you actually write things in. Um, I'm not not usually a guy who writes things in, but it it does help me to sort of visualize uh, what's coming up next. So maybe that would be helpful for you as we dive into this message. Um, to start out, I'm going to give you a, a quick <clears throat> introduction into what this series is really all about. And as we um, kick off here in week one, you're going to see how this gets, gets going pretty quickly here. This series is, is birthed out of the idea. Ben and I came, were sitting down and we said, you know what, it's kind of the Lenten season, getting ready for, for um, Holy Week and, and Easter Sunday. And so we want a series that really focuses on the, the main theme of the season. And if you didn't grow up in church, you're like, what is that? <laughs> uh, what is the, the purpose of Lent? The, the purpose is to really dig into why Jesus suffered. Why did he die? And, you know, so often in church, oh, he died for you. He suffered for you. you know, what was the purpose? Why did he have to do that? And the, the reason of the purpose of Lent is to really dig into that idea and, and unfold it a little bit. So that's what we're going to do in this series under the theme, Shadows. And it, the, the theme rests on this claim Jesus made. This is a bold claim that nobody had ever made before Jesus came. He said, uh, in, in the presence of many of his enemies, he said, you know, you're, you're looking at these, these scriptures, this Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, you're looking at these things in the wrong way. He said, these are the scriptures that tell my story. Everything that's written in this Bible, it's written about me. And he's talking about the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. This is all written about me. In fact, there's one place in in particular, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to a couple of the people who really loved him. And these people were sad because they knew Jesus had died and they they thought this is horrible. And Jesus is, they don't recognize him. And Jesus is basically chastising them. Saying, how could you be so foolish? Didn't you know that this had to happen. And then here's kind of our theme verse for this series, uh, Luke chapter 24. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All the scriptures tell his story. Everything in, in one way or another points to him, or as we're looking in this series, what, everything written is somehow a shadow of him. And sometimes the shadows are pretty clear, sometimes not so much. But in this series, we're going to take a look at three of these shadows and see what they teach us about why he had to suffer and die. All right? So this week, what we're doing is we're, we're jumping into this topic. And what I usually like to do is when we start with, a, with kind of a, a new topic, just to, to help get you on board, I design a question that gets you thinking a little bit. And this is the question that I want to have you resolve before you exit those doors today. The question is this, do I act like I'm a victim? Don't look at the people around you, this is just for you. Do I act like I'm a victim? And I, I understand the word victim can be used in a couple different ways, and so let's, let's clarify real quickly. We're not talking about, okay, victim of a crime or some horrible thing. You know, we, we sometimes use victim in that sense. I'm using victim in a different sense. When you look at yourself in the mirror, do you say, oh, I'm just a victim? Nothing's happened to me yet, but I'm a victim. And as I thought about, you know, what does it look like to be a victim? Maybe the easiest way to explain it is to show you something. This was a Super Bowl commercial that just came out this year. I know some of you have seen it. Take a look. 
Marsha, what happened? Peter hit me in the nose with a football. I can't go to the dance like this. Well, I'm sure it was an accident, sweetheart. An eye for an eye. That's what Dad always says. I never said that, honey. Shut up! Got to teach Peter a lesson. Marsha, eat a Snickers. Why? You get a little hostile when you're hungry. Better? Better. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Jan, this isn't about you. <laughs> it never is. <laughs> That's not your family, is it? <laughs> uh, you know, all, all these emotions going around. You're like, no, that's not my family. We have more updated furniture than that. Otherwise, everything is basically the same. You know, that's, that could be a, a scene out of anybody's household, right? You know, we sit and we get in these um, situations where we just go into victim mode. Oh, somebody did something to me. Oh, there's nothing I can do about it. Oh, it's, it's never fair. That's, that's the one I hear around my house a lot. It's not fair. As I did some research, this is nothing t- too deep. In fact, the ter- first two fill-ins on your sheet, they're nothing you know, terribly deep. It's just me looking at the way we, we use the word victim and getting a good handle on it. A victim is somebody who's been injured in some way. Maybe it's a football to the nose. Maybe it's a reputation thing. But a victim has been injured somehow. The thing about a victim is the victim does not cause the injury. They weren't the source of it. A victim does not deserve the injury. Um, in other words, you know, they weren't asking for it. And a victim could not avoid the injury. They didn't run into a bad situation. And, and as we look at that, you know, is, does that describe you sometimes? Do you act like a victim? And... and Okay, maybe it's kind of funny to see it, you know, play out in, in our everyday lives, but at the same time, there's something about this attitude of being a victim that can have a deep spiritual impact, too, and it can affect your relationship with God. And I'll illustrate that by going back to the Latin word. The Latin word for victim, our, our English word, comes from this. If you want to say it with an English accent, it's victim, a, uh, victima in Latin. It literally means it only refers to an animal. Our word victim comes from a Latin word that means animal. An animal that's about to be sacrificed, or an animal that has been sacrificed. If you're a victim, in the literal sense, you're an animal on an altar. Now, as, as you, you know, consider this, okay, now we're getting too deep, Pastor Matt. I, I'll, I'll admit, this, this uh, talk today, it's, it's going to be kind of this deep one, and a little bit more somber as we're also talking about, you know, this whole Lenten theme. But, but consider that. Do you act like a victim sometimes? And if you do, what are you telling God? When you act like a victim, are you perhaps telling him, God, why are you treating me like an animal? God, why are you being so unfair to me? Why are you sending all these bad things into my life, God? Why am I such a victim here? <clears throat> and if that's the way you view your relationship with God, then <laughs> the way you define that is redefining what he says. Uh, key point number two here. Defining yourself as a victim will redefine your relationship with God. Because here's what we're going to see in a second. He does not view you or treat you like a victim. Yeah, you feel like it sometimes. Yeah, it seems like it sometimes. We'll address that in a little bit. But, but the first thing we really want to get down here is God does not view you or treat you 
like a victim. And if that's the way you define it, then you're the one changing the basis for the relationship. We're going to flesh that out by looking at an example here. You know, you, you look at various people in your life and you're like, oh my goodness, that person is such a victim all the time. Everything bad happens to them. Or that, that person, nothing bad happens to them. You, you can sort of look at different people and say, yeah, I understand why they act like a victim. They, they seem like one. We're going to hear a story here of, of um, one of the main figures of the Old Testament named Abraham. And if anybody had the right to act like a victim, it was this guy, and specifically this guy's son. And if, you've, if you grew up in church, uh, maybe this story is going to be pretty, pretty um, familiar to you. And, and, and if you didn't grow up in church, maybe it'll sound a little bit awkward. But here, I'll set the stage real quickly, no matter who you are. So, so we have this main character. His name is Abraham. And God said, look, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations, and, and one of your descendants is going to be the Savior of the world. You know, big promise. But the only problem is Abraham didn't have any sons. And it wasn't until, you remember how old he was when he had his son? A hundred. How old was his wife? Yeah, because we, ha- we had to think about this. Ninety is, yeah. Um, she was um, about 90 years old. And, and so it wasn't until they were very old that God finally gave Abraham and his wife Sarah a son. And so you can imagine, if you're waiting your, li- your entire life for a child, if God finally gives it to you, and what do you love more than the world? You love that kid. You love that child. And now as you get into the, what's recorded in Genesis chapter 22, God is going to use this as a testing moment. Abraham, I know you love your son a lot. Do you love him more than you love me? Are you willing to let him be a victim? And I'll summarize the story real quickly. It's, it's super long, so I don't want you to lose track of how it goes. But God comes to Abraham. He says, hey, take your son Isaac on a trip. You are going to sacrifice him to me. And so he, he and Isaac go on this trip, and they get up to this place. And Abraham, I'm not going to tell the whole story. Abraham puts him on this altar that he had made on top of some wood. And he, he, he's got his son on top of this altar, all bound up, unable to move. And he grabs his knife. And he's ready to kill his own son. And we'll see how the story ends in just a second. But I want to get you sort of get a bigger picture for how the story flows. We're in Genesis chapter 22. Um, This is not in your service folder because there wasn't enough room. But uh, we'll go through this kind of quickly here. So God, as we said, God is testing Abraham. And God said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Verse 2, God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. And there, there are some, some things in here that you might not see that's, that's really tugging at your heart, at Abraham's heart. Abraham, I know you love your son. Now I want you to sacrifice him to me. But here's the deal. You're going to kill him. But there's not going to be any grave you can go visit. Because I want you, after you kill him, to burn him up. Send him up to heaven in a pile of smoke because he belongs to me. And by the way, there's nothing really special about the place we're going to do this. Just go to this region of Moriah. I'll pick a spot. We'll find a place for it. Nothing sacred about it. It's just a place. 
Give your son to me. And you start to ask, how could Abraham possibly do that? We'll answer that in a second. Verse 3. Early the next morning, pause right there. Part of us is going to sit back and, you got to appeal this, right? You have to appeal. Um, and the interesting thing is, just a few chapters ago in Genesis 17, Genesis 18, Abraham did make a pretty big appeal to God for his nephew named, you remember his name? Lot. Yeah, Lot was in a, a city called Sodom, and God said, I'm going to destroy that city. And so it's this big, long chapter. Abraham is pleading and appealing, please don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Please let there be another way. And, and you know, finally, the conversation's over. But Abraham pleads, please save my nephew. And now what does he do? Without so much as a peep, early the next morning, without appealing, and it doesn't mention that he talked to his wife. We just got done with the marriage series. I don't suggest you use this as, as your basis for anything. It doesn't even say he talked to his wife, Sarah, about this. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God told him about. And so many th- details in the story are just eaten away at you. Each piece of wood he cuts and gets ready, he knows is a piece of wood that's going to burn his own son. And it goes on. On the third day, can you imagine traveling with your son for three days knowing what you're going to do to him? What do you talk about? What do you do? For three days, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, I understand this part, he said, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. I can understand him wanting to to tell his servants, stay here. I wouldn't want them to see what I'm about to do. I don't want them to stop it. The next part might be harder to understand. He says, we will worship and then we will come back. Now, either Abraham is lying through his teeth to, to let his servants you know, appease them and just let them play along here. Either he's lying through his teeth or he's got hope that maybe there's a different plan. We'll see which one it is in a second here. Verse 5, verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And, you know, there, there's so many things in this story where we look at it and there's so many things that remind us of what else would happen in the region of Moriah almost 2,000 years after this, 1,500 years after this. There would be another man carrying wood on his shoulders to a place where he would be sacrificed. Maybe a little shadow there. And Abraham himself carried the fire and the instrument that would kill his son, the knife. Verse 7. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, he replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Very good question. Hey, Dad, why did we leave the servants behind? Hey, Dad, why do we have wood and fire and a knife but no sacrifice? Dad, what's going on? What are we doing here? And, and this question kind of eats you up from the inside, doesn't it? How do you tell your son that he's going to die? 
This is what Abraham does. Abraham answered him, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, same thing. Either Abraham is lying through his teeth to get his son to go along with the plan, or Abraham hopes that something else may happen. Verse 9. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Can you imagine building an altar and arranging the, the object that's going to kill and sacrifice your son? And then he bound his son, Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, very much alive, very much wide eyes. Here's the thing about sacrifices, too. When you look at how the Bible describes sacrifices, sometimes I picture, okay, here's my lamb, I give it to the priest, and I go on my, very, my, on my merry way. And sometimes we might picture it that way, but the Bible pictures sacrifices as something much bloodier. <laughs> the way that, that it describes Moses and the Israelites um, sacrificing animals many years later, they wouldn't just kill the animal, but they would drain its blood. And to do that, you would open up a vein or several veins while the animal is still alive. Let the blood pump out. And as Abraham places his live son on this altar, on top of this wood, very much alive, he knows what is about to happen. Not a good thing. Not good news for the victim. And then uh, next verse, then we'll pause here for a second. Then he, this is super slow motion, like you're watching it on TV. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife with one purpose in mind, to kill his own son. How in the world could Abraham do that? And why in the world would Abraham do that? Why give such an appeal for his nephew Lot, but be so quick and so willing to, by his own hand, kill his son? And to find the answer to that, it goes a little bit deeper than what you see in this story. As, as we mentioned, you know, Isaac was no ordinary baby. He was a miracle baby. Born to, to Abraham and, and to Sarah in very old age, he was a miracle birth. But beyond that... He also had something special attached from God. It was a promise. God told Abraham about his son Isaac. You know, his name means he laughed, laughter, because Sarah laughed when she, she heard that she would be pregnant. Uh, God said, this son Isaac, he's going to have babies. <clears throat> and his babies are going to have babies. He's got grandbabies, great-grandbabies, babies everywhere. Just baby mess. And God said, one of those babies is going to be my answer to the promise I made to, to Adam and to Eve. One of those babies is going to be the savior of this world. I promise you. And so not in a way that he abused it, but something Abraham understood about Isaac is this. Isaac was, in a sense, unbreakable. He was bulletproof. And especially in God's hands, Abraham knew that God would not allow something bad to happen to his son of promise. God would not do something to Isaac that would make him break his own promise. And, and um, as, as you look at you know, the rest of the Bible, some, um, some of the writers in the New Testament look back at this story and they kind of dove into that truth. And this is what they came up with. You look at Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith Abraham... 
When God tested him, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Why? Here's why. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively, God did raise the dead for, for, I, for uh, Abraham, as we're about to see. If God made a promise that his son was going to be the father of many nations, just like he was, Abraham knew God would do whatever it took, even if his son was empty of blood, even if his son was a big pile of smoke up in the sky, God could raise him from the dead to make him the heir. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll go back into the story here in a second, but I, I know this is completely empty of any application to your life, right? <laughs> um, nothing so far in this story has anything to do with what happens when you go into victim mode. Uh, we'll, we'll get there in a second, just bear with me. Uh, the next verse here helps us to take the next step. The angel of the Lord, so Abraham's reaching for his knife. He's going to kill his son. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And God uses this act of sacrifice, this Willingness to sacrifice as a gauge to measure Abraham's love. And maybe a little shadow here. How does God want you to gauge his love for you? Was he not also willing to give up his son, his only son, whom he loved? And then verse 13, um, 14 helps us finish off the section. Abraham looked up. There caught in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering. Here's a very important word. Instead of, in place of, in substitution of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, as Moses writes this down hundreds of years later, to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. What God is doing here is something that was completely unheard of, completely unique. This is the first time anything like this has happened. Usually when people approach God, they have the Isaac mentality. God, we have the wood. God, or, um, Father, we have the wood. Father, we have the uh, fire. We have the knife. What are we going to give him, though? A sacrifice is always something I give to him. What do we have that we can give to him? And this is something very unique. So unique that Abraham attaches a, a name to this place, and that name sticks for hundreds of years. Here, for the first time, God provided his own sacrifice. God provided a substitute so that one man wouldn't have to die. And he placed instead in his place a victim. And, and this is one of the, the key points we need to take with us. Okay, going back to the main question. Um, <clears throat> do I act like a victim? Do I act like everything's out of my control? Oh God, why are you sending me these horrible things? Why are you putting me on the altar? Why are you burning me up? Why, 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 why all these things? You know, do you act like a victim? First of all, <laughs> this is a hard one to, to come to grips with. Abraham had every right to act that way. But he didn't because he knew 
the Lord would provide. What we're about to get here with, with our third key point is something that you're going to wrestle with, and it's something that you're going to have to ask yourself a question every single day. When you start acting like a victim, you have to remind yourself, I am not the victim. Because the victim was provided by God. Uh, let's put that down for Phil and three. I'm going to have you repeat this. I don't usually have you repeat things, do I? I'm going to have you repeat this one because this is so important that this is something you need to tell yourself. Instead of you say I, instead of, uh, instead of uh, you say I. Uh, ready? One, two, three, go. I am not the victim. The victim was provided by God. And you tell yourself that often. I am not the victim. And, and especially... Primarily in your relationship with God, you tell yourself, I am not the victim. The victim was provided by God. The sacrifice was provided by God. And, and that's what Jesus' life was all leading to. You know, from the moment John the Baptist saw him, look, the Lamb of God, the scapegoat who takes away the sin of the world. Um, all the way, you know, to all the different shadows that he finally proved that he was the reality of. Carrying his own wood up to Calvary. Carrying the, own, the, 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 the same wood that would serve as the instrument for his death. And he went there. And here's an important difference. It's not like Abraham and Isaac where this was a sacrifice of worship. The Lamb of God, Jesus, would be a sacrifice of atonement. A sacrifice of worship says, God, you're great. A sacrifice of atonement makes things great between you and him. And that's the sacrifice that Jesus gave. You are not the victim because the victim was provided by God. And, and as we wrap things up, I want to send you home with something that you can maybe do. First of all, here's an important thing to remember. With this stuff, the victim stuff, you don't have to do anything. But here's something you need to do. <laughs> when you go into victim mode, and it's something we slip into all the time, you go into victim mode, you know, woe is me, why me, all this stuff. When you go into victim mode, I want you to do something. Just be honest with yourself and ask yourself, why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I acting like a victim? Just ask yourself that question. And when you think through it, you're going to come to, to one nugget of truth that's going to help you conquer this thing. Maybe for a lot of us, it's, you know, why am I acting like a victim? Because I need more control. I'm acting like a victim because I need more attention. I'm acting like a victim because I need more sympathy. I'm acting like a victim because I need more people to notice me. Well, I'm acting like a victim because I need to be more understood. I'm acting like a victim because I need to be more loved. And when you, when you put your finger on it, there's one le thing left. To, it's the same thing Isaac did. One thing left to do. Go to the altar. Go there in your mind to the place where the sacrifices are made. That's where victims go, right? Go there. 
Go in your mind to, to the cross where, where sacrifices are made. And here's the, the final thing that you're going to take with you today. Now, key point number four. When you go to the cross, you're going to be changed from a victim into a victor. It's at the cross that victims find victory. You ask, well, why, am I, why am I in victim mode? Is that because I need more control? Well, what do you see in the cross? He who had control over all things uh, became the sacrifice in your place instead of you. Is, is your thing that you need more attention? God put all his attention on you on the cross. Is it that you need... More sympathy? Well, the, the, the high priest in heaven, Jesus, he knows what it's like to be a victim, believe me. You're looking for more love. Well, that's where God demonstrated it. He did not keep back his own son, but he went through with it. He didn't just put his son on the altar. He took the knife and he killed him for you instead of you in your place. And, and as you, you know, grapple with this whole thing, um, you know, victim versus victor, uh, there's going to be some next steps that we take in the next couple weeks. Uh, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to specifically look at that cross, and we're going to see how can it possibly be the source of all these answers that we're looking for. How can I find control there? How can I find love there? And, and what we'll see in the story of, of the bronze serpent, you know, several hundred years after Abraham, it's going to help us see the way that God takes victims and turns them into conquerors. Uh, for today, let's close off with a prayer.